my clients are always frustrated with themselves themselves when their things aren't working the way they expected. And I'm like, hey, if you were a robot, I would have programmed something a long time ago. You're not a robot. That's why we don't have any answers. That's why me just giving you, um, you know, this like black and white meal plan is not going to work in the end. Like we got to figure it out for you and what works for you. And I, I'm not the expert of you. You're the expert. <laughs> You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello, welcome to this week's podcast. So what have we got going on this week? This week, we have got the pleasure of Julie Duffy Dillon. And Julie is a registered dietitian, an eating disorder specialist, and a food behavior expert who's also trained as a mental health counselor. And she owns Birdhouse Nutrition Therapy, which is based in North Carolina. And we had a really fun conversation, actually. Um, in this podcast, we talk a lot about food and eating and eating a lot of food, which, as you probably know, is something that I think is pretty bloody important when discussing eating disorder recovery. We also talk about a fat positive attitude and what that is. And as usual, there's lots of tangents and discussing things that usually get pushed onto the sideline, like the problem with the bog standard fat phobic training that most nutritionists and general practitioners receive as a foundation for their treatment practices, and the problems that occur when this filters into the advice and opinion that they give people who come to them to help. But before we get into all that, I've got an announcement to make, so bear with me. Now, ADRA, which is the organization that I started to support adults in recovery from restrictive eating disorders via meal support and other resources, has applied for nonprofit status. And the mission of the organization is to continue to provide peer and community support and resources for people in active recovery, and that's adults when I say people, from restrictive eating disorders. Now, I'm sure that you can appreciate that getting this meal support service, which is now also a tech support service, up and running, was an effort, because it was. <laughs> you, you can't see my face in this podcast, but if you could, you'd see that it was an effort. <laughs> you probably appreciate that even more of an effort goes into fundraising for a nonprofit organization. But I do believe it's needed, and I do believe it's worth it. And if you do too, I would love to, for you to consider donating and helping me out with this. In fact, if you like these podcasts, then consider showing your support with a patron donation that will go straight to ADRA. I'm not going to bang on about this and I'm not going to try and twist your arm. I'm just going to say that this podcast takes me around six hours a week to produce and it's free. And if you like it, you can support me by supporting other people in recovery from eating disorders. I'll link to the donation button in the show notes this episode. And just think, a 25 buck donation and you've just bought a meal support session for somebody who's in need. So it really goes a long way and it will mean a lot to someone. It will certainly mean a lot to me. <laughs> I don't know if you can, don't know if you care about that, but it would. Anyway, so like I said, I won't bang on about it. Let's get to this week's podcast. The first question that I asked Julie is the same question that I ask every guest that I have to tell us a little bit about themselves. So here's Julie. So my name is Julie Duffy Dillon, and I'm a registered dietitian, and also I'm trained as a mental health counselor. So basically what that means is I was a dietitian for many years, and when I was working as a dietitian, um, I was specialized in working with people with diabetes. I was a diabetes educator, and I got really into working with children. And when I was doing this, I found that like a lot of the... Um, interactions I was having 
were quite um, intense and there was lots of things going on that was outside of just nutrition, like to help people have um, a healthier connection to food. And I'm going to guess the way I was defining at that moment, I realized that like family dynamics and mood were also part and I just felt so ill-equipped. So I ended up going back to school and getting a master's degree in mental health counseling. And so um, using those two, I ended up starting to work with eating disorders after that. Um, Before I got my degree in counseling, I really didn't really want to work with eating disorders. It's kind of strange because I love it so much. Um, But initially, it just wasn't something that I was really interested in. But after I finished that, I became a um, specialist in eating disorders. And so now I'm an eating disorder specialist. I train dietitians and other healthcare providers to work with eating disorders. I'm also someone that identifies as a fat positive dietitian. So um, what that basically means is I'm a dietitian that doesn't use weight as a measure progress. I feel like that fear of fat that the society has is something that is collectively keeping us all down. So I want to remove that as a barrier. And um, we all have fat on our bodies. Every cell of our body needs it. So why can't we be positive about it? (laughs) So that's a little bit about me. Can you tell me a little bit more about that fat positive idea? I love it. (laughs) Yeah, um, the fat positive part of my uh, career is one that I feel like is for some people can is, appear to be really radical, um, especially because again, like everyone is so fearful of fat at this point. Um, but what I found, and you know, earlier on in my career, I did help people go on diets and help them pursue pursue weight loss. And what I found is that it just didn't work. You know, people were either if they lost weight, it just came back on, or if they were starting to lose weight and the weight would start to come back on, but then they wouldn't come back to see me anymore. So, you know, for a few people, that's not a big deal. But when there's like tens of even a hundred of people that just are not coming back anymore, I think it's important for us to realize that as healthcare providers, that maybe were doing something wrong. Um, And it made me really start to look into the research behind dieting in general. And as a dietitian, you'd think we already would have this down pat. But I feel like my training and the the traditional training for a dietitian is just to teach people about what's good to eat and what's bad to eat. And there's also some other components about like disease management. Like if someone has like cystic fibrosis or something like that, we can also help them manage their condition with with um, what they eat. But for the most part, I think most people think of dietitians helping people lose weight. And that's what I was trained to do. And But when I started realizing that it wasn't helping clients, I was also at the same time noticing that clients who I was helping lose weight were starting to develop like emotional eating and then binge eating or other eating disorders like anorexia. And, and at that point, I was starting to appreciate like eating disorders are deadly. I don't want to be a part of that. And can I possibly be a part of that if I'm helping people lose weight? And so when we look at the research, and this was probably like 15 years ago, there already was some that was like, basically, yeah, we can help people lose weight, but we can't help people keep that weight off because of our biology. It's just not how our body's programmed to survive. So, um, and then when I looked even further and as research was coming out, I, it, I came to appreciate that 
um, dieting is the greatest predictor for an eating disorder. We know eating disorders are really complicated. They have a biological basis and a component of it is some kind of change in their eating status. And for many people that is dieting. So that's when I was like, whoa, <laughs> this is not something I can be a part of. And um, so, you know, since 2004, 2005, right in there, um, that's when I stopped putting anyone on a diet um, just because I feel like it promotes harm. And and then, you know, I got to know a lot of people who were in these larger bodies um, who were very healthy, um, healthier than me. And I'm in this smaller body. And yet they were told that they weren't healthy just because they were too big. And that's why I really started looking into research on, well, what what is what is BMI really doing for us? Is this really helping? And of course, you know, you and your listeners probably already know that BMI is really not worth its weight. Um, it doesn't really give us the information it was supposed to be giving us. And um, we really need to be looking at behaviors more than anything else. So there's there's a lot of things in there that um, I sort of would like to comment on or ask questions about. And the first one is, as you said, you took uh, um, dietitian qualification or nutritional um, schooling. And I, I did the same thing in England um, probably about 15 years ago now. And sadly, I was still, I was very sick when I took that training and it only made me worse um, because it, it just focused on how to cut fat out of people's diets. Um, and, you, you know, sort of pretty much you should live off fruit and vegetables and, you know, anything else should be eaten very in very small amounts. So it was, it was very unhelpful for me as far as recovery was concerned, it made me a lot, sicker and what I had to do to get recovered from anorexia was almost exactly the polar opposite of everything that that nutrition degree told me I should be doing in order to be a healthy person. Mm -hmm. You're not alone. I hope you know that. Um, I've read research about um, one in three nutrition students is experiencing an eating disorder and one in four dietitians is experiencing one. So it's not uncommon. And I, I feel like the one of the things that's hurting us as nutri nutrition professionals, one of the occupational hazards, is that the only way that traditional programs have been able to teach nutrition concepts about food in general and body types as as a dichotomy, you know, or this like binary, it's either good or it's bad. Um, there's not this flexible kind of notion. And so whenever I speak to nutrition students, which I do often, you know, there's five nutrition programs within an hour of where I live. And so I'm always going there to talk about eating disorders. And whenever I'm there about eating disorders, I also make sure that I talk about eating disorder prevention, which I think is really where we need to be spending our, our money too. You know, it's like, how can we prevent this from happening? And um, one of the things I mentioned is that, you know, food is not on this dichotomy. And um, when we try to put it in a dichotomy, it's so harmful um, for many different reasons, no matter how a brain is wired. You know, there's some people who um, have more perfectionistic tendencies that will keep it at such a um, all or nothing kind of experience and will only eat the good foods. And then there's other people who will find themselves in this like tug of war chaos because they'll try to do all the good things, but then their physiology kicks in to prevent them from going down through starvation and they'll binge and then they'll feel horrible about it, but it's just their body saving them, you know? So um, I really feel like there, we need to find another way as a nutrition profession to teach nutrition because food is just not so black and white. Um, and, and there are, there are other ways to do it. Plus, as dietitians, as you probably remember in your training, we don't 
like helping people manage their weight is not like the only thing as dietitians we can we're trained to do. We have all these other parts. It's called medical nutrition therapy. All these other things that we can do. Um, why not also focus on that? Yeah, and um, I guess the most worrying thing for me is that somebody like me could have then gone on and been giving somebody else nutritional advice. So I was really sick and surviving on apples. And then, mm. so then I then had a qualification where I could go and legally give somebody else nutritional advice. And I think that's a real problem. Yes. And, um, you know, something that I always think about with eating disorders is that metaphor of the canary in the coal mine. I don't know if it's one that you guys talk about on this podcast or if you've heard of it. Is it something that you've heard of before, Tabitha? Um, I'd love you to share it. Sure. So I always think about this canary in the coal mine when we talk about topics like this. And, um, you know, back before they had sophisticated equipment for coal miners to help them stay safe and out of like toxic fume areas. Um, you know, now they have this equipment that kind of like buzzers go off so they can know when the, the air is not safe. Um, but before they had that kind of sophisticated equipment, miners used to bring down canaries to the coal mine with them um, as they were doing their work. And the thing about canaries is that they like to sing the whole time. And um, when the canaries were singing, they knew that the, the air was safe for the humans. The difference between canaries and humans, though, is that um, the canaries would be affected before the humans if the toxic gas, if the gas level got too high. So if it was at toxic levels, for the canaries, the humans knew they had to hurry up and get out before it got to the point that it would hurt them. And so the miners would just listen to the canaries. And if it ever went silent, that was their warning. Get out of there now. And I think the way that our world and nutrition departments are teaching nutrition to their students and preparing them to help other people is this kind of toxic environment. And so I know for me, I don't know how I got out of the nutrition degree without an eating disorder, but I, I'm basically not the canary, you know? And for you, you were experiencing it. And so you were the canary, you know, you're the warning that eventually this could lead to a point where it can hurt all of us. So, um, you know, you, you were, you succumbed to the toxic levels of, um, you know, fat phobia and uh, bad body thoughts and um, all the like dichotomous way of thinking about food that hurt you. So it should have been a warning for everyone else. Like, okay, let's make sure it doesn't hurt anybody else <laughs> and we can change it before it's everybody, it hurts everybody else. The other side of it is that I was, at, I was already sick when I went for that, that nutritional degree, but it's why it appealed to me <laughs> because I wasn't, um, it was not, you know, I was obsessed with food and already obsessed with trying not to eat very much and um, healthy eating in inverted commas. And so that's actually why that sort of um, profession or that qualification appealed to me for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly that's a really common experience. I think for a lot of my um, peers who are experiencing eating disorder recovery and also working as a dietitian, and that's what they said too, like that it appealed to them because it was fueling what they were also already thinking about. And a lot of people will say to me too, just knowing my like beliefs about how we should teach food, because I don't think we should teach food. And in this black and white way, I think we should teach that flexibility and honoring our bodies. And I have a lot of, um, peers who will say, well, you know, 
that's fine when you're talking to someone who has an eating disorder, but when someone has like high cholesterol or diabetes, they don't need that information. They need this other information. And I'm like, but you know what I have found is you can teach ways to eat in a healthy way that doesn't hurt those who either have an eating disorder or are at risk for it. There's a way to do it. Um, and it can be the foundation for everyone. And so I feel like nutrition programs can do it too. And so what would have happened is you may have gotten then helpful information that could have um, debunked some of the myths that the eating disorder was telling you, like the lies it was telling you to the point either maybe it helped you heal or it made you not interested in pursuing that degree anymore. You know? Um, Yeah. I mean, I feel like the potential could have been there. Well, and the information is out there because, I mean, the reason that I, I love just sort of the fat positive approach is because I wrote a book called Love Fat, which oh, I, good. you know, I wrote and that was about how in recovery I had to learn to love fat because it was my biggest fear. And but to, in that process, I had to do a hell of a lot of research and find the alternative versions of, say, Ansel Keys's study that, that, that showed that um, fat was the cause of heart disease and the debunked versions of that that said that that wasn't true. And, yes. and, and then the follow-on studies that actually are beginning to show that, I, wow, it looks like even saturated fat is good for us. Um, and I had to yeah. do so much research per myself to find those sorts of things that certainly wasn't presented to me in the nutritional course that I took. Same with me. I mean, that's where I, when I was kind of in this ethical dilemma where I was like, wow, I think I may be hurting my clients here. Um, I had to seek it out and really dig for it and realize that maybe I was led astray. And, um, it stinks that we have to rely on that in order to get to the information that's going to be really helpful. I mean, I really feel like it shouldn't, it should be easier to find. I still don't really understand why it's not. I mean, people say it's the diet industry. They make so much money out of everybody wanting low fat products and things like that. But are nutritional sort of educational courses really that influenced by that sort of thing? I, I really don't understand why someone like you or I can do some research and find papers that show us that, oh, actually, fat, saturated fat even is a required component of a human body. And therefore, mm-hmm. we should intake it if we if we can find that sort of thing then i just wonder why it is that educational courses are still just being completely ignorant to it it seems well yeah you know i think it's really complicated and i don't think it's gonna be just one solution i think it's gonna be really messy for a while in order to fix it and um you know something that I know I had to face when I started to really understand research behind weight and things like fat and just eating enough in general is I had to face that I was wrong, that I wasn't helping, that I was hurting people. And that can feel really uncomfortable and shameful. And I also appreciate that at that point, I didn't have a mortgage yet. I didn't have a family. So I, by by pivoting my career and starting a practice that wouldn't be using diets, it wasn't that that high of a risk for me. But I appreciate there are people who research um, under the parameters that obesity is harmful or that eating fat is harmful. Like people are using those parameters to pay mortgages, <laughs> and and you know I I also appreciate that scientists. Um, are really, you know, ethics is really 
important. But I also think there are things like confirmation bias that are not always addressed in research. Um, I am not a researcher. I am 100% a clinician and research doesn't come easy to me. So, but that's one thing that I've been able to glean is that um, if you're expecting um, that a person in a larger body is going to have certain outcomes in a research, um, that is going to show through in the research and people can twist through, twist the numbers. Um, and, and honestly to change the ship, the direction that nutrition science is going, I think it's going to have to take a really big, big study to just force it into like looking at itself and, and, and changing direction. It's going to take some really massive, obvious kind of research to realize that, oh, we've been doing it wrong. Kind of like the earth is not flat, <laughs> you know, like it's going to have to be something like that. Um, Probably just everything is is grounded on this basis of the thought that um, fat is bad for people. You know, like it, it's just, I can see it in every aspect of that system. Um, right. And most worryingly, I also get plenty of emails from people who are working with um, dietitians, um, supposedly eating disorder specialist dietitians, who are also being told, you know, not to eat too much of, to, not to eat too much fat or not to eat, you know, as much food as they want to and to stick to the magic number of 2,500 calories a day, which... <laughs> Is that the magic number these days? <laughs> that's apparently, the, it seems to be the magic number that it's so many meal plans are based on. Where I'm like, well, wow. that might have got me through breakfast when I was in... Exactly. Oh my gosh, no. When I've, when I've helped people recover from malnutrition from their eating disorder, oh my gosh, like 2,500 isn't going to... Ha- touch most people like that's not going to be enough yeah maybe for like through the first meal (laughs) that's it oh my no um and you know the thing that I um because I live in the U.S. and then something I've heard about in the U.K. is even for people who are in larger bodies who um are going through infertility are told like in order to get fertility treatments you need to lose weight which I feel like is it's so, uh, that makes me feel so sad. I've, I've struggled with infertility myself. And so I know that desire to start a family. And so to, to hold that back when a, a woman is trying so hard to like meet this biological need, I feel like is it's discriminatory and it's, I feel like it's even like, it's so immoral, you know, to like hold that back just because they're too big. Um, and I feel like it, that's, Weight bias. That's the thing, basically, what we were talking about before. Like, weight bias is so in, it's just part of our way of thinking now that we don't even see it. It's just so there. So that's why um, in nutrition programs, they're, they, it just feels so uncomfortable. I know I make people really uncomfortable when I go in there and speak about being a fat positive dietitian. I make them so uncomfortable, but I love it because like, we need to start poking around in here to make things change. Um, yeah. And so, um, I don't know. I, I, the other thing I was thinking about too, is I do feel like weight bias hurts everyone, no matter what size they are. Um, and one of the ways I think it hurts people recovering from anorexia is because part of having anorexia is that fear of fat, of gaining too much weight. And part of our society is also saying that, like that, gaining too much weight is horrible or you're, it's like socially going to make you an outcast. And if we know without a doubt that physiologically fat is not a bad thing, um, I think it's really important for all of us who recognize that to make sure we keep saying that because people who are in the throes of their anorexia 
by just helping to change the culture, I think will help more people also recover and just make that face of that the fear of fat not so debilitating. I mean, it's still I know it's still going to be there, but maybe we can yeah, just take the edge off of it a little bit by changing cultural expectations. Yeah. And it's those cultural expectations that I think what I find saddest about those is that they're there and but they're unachievable for anybody eating disorder or not. Um, so for example, um, you know, I remember when I took my nutrition qualification in the UK, we were told that actually 2,500 calories was what a man should eat a day and 2,000 was what a woman should eat a day. And that was just accepted. But the, the thing is, is that that's, that's only not um, acceptable for a person that is in recovery from an eating disorder. But I don't know a single woman that who is not dieting that would naturally eat less than 2000 calories a day. And it's, you know, like those numbers still in England, if you ask people and it's on all of the labeling, like the, mm -hmm. the recommended number of calories for a woman a day is 2000 calories. And I think that people throw that number around, but it's not even realistic. And some people think, Oh, I eat 2000 calories. That's about right. But they don't, they actually eat a lot more than that. So these mm -hmm. numbers are being thrown around that aren't realistic. They're just not true. Because anybody that's not on a diet naturally tends to eat a lot more food than that. But it puts this standard out there that's just completely unachievable for anybody. And shouldn't be, yeah. it shouldn't be a standard because it's just based on, I don't know what, it's not based on what a person needs to eat. Oh, it's such an average, but then there's also like, well, let's take a little bit off just so they don't get too big. <laughs> I mean, like that's, that's why they get those numbers that are just not appropriate for anyone. Um, and you know, the thing that is really frustrating about nutrition, but it's also part of what I love about it is it's, it's not the typical kind of science. I feel like nutrition has an art to it. And, um, I get frustrated when I read things about nutrition when they're like, well, nutrition is not rocket science. And I'm like, okay, well, Mr. Smarty Pants, um, I do think nutrition science is just like rocket science. If anything, I think it's harder because um, rocket science is just, it just is. Like it's, yeah, I know they're like, they're finding new things and, you know, I don't know much about rocket science, but like it's not, it's just yes or no. It's a, it's, it's not something that's an emotionally connected. Nutrition science is always changing. It's fluid. Um, our needs are always changing. There are times in my life where I needed, um, three to 4,000 calories a day. I'm now 42 and now I need, a, I don't need that much, but I'm like, I don't know how much I'm eating to tell you the truth. I'm just eating how much I need, but I'm like, but our bodies change. And so when you try to like make it this exact number, it hurts everyone because it's not really giving it to anybody. I very much agree with you there. I, I have problems personally. I, I don't have a very good attitude towards nutritional science. I sometimes wish it wasn't called science because it does make it seem like it's this black and white and this is what we know. And But the problem is, is that we, we don't know enough to start throwing around numbers and saying this is what everybody should do because everybody's body reacts differently to food. And we don't know what any anybody's body does with, say, a calorie it takes in, where it uses that, what exactly it does with it. So it just makes me think, well, who are we to start saying that, oh, this is exactly what you should do? We're using our brains like we think I think we think we know more about nutritional science than we do. And, you know, therefore we give this advice or people give this advice, which really is based on just what we know, which is not that much. We, we don't really, really know yeah. that much. We don't. Um, and I, I feel like it's it's 
probably more, it's like a combination of another kind of side of medicine and psychology together. I feel like that's really where that science is. And that's why it's, it's trying to like put it in this like square hole and it's a circular piece, you know, it's just not going to fit in that way that it's expecting to. It just treats the human body like a calculator though, which it's not. It's- mm-hmm. Like we're robots. I know my clients are always frustrated with themselves, themselves when their things aren't working the way they expected. And I'm like, Hey, if you were a robot, I would have programmed something a long time ago. You're not a robot. That's why we don't have any answers. That's why me just giving you, um, you know, this like black and white meal plan is not going to work in the end. Like we got to figure it out for you and what works for you. And I, I'm not the expert of you. You're the expert, <laughs> you know. It's and it's not. It's even you know what works right now because that might yeah, change right next now. year. And yes. you know, I think I I probably say at least once a day to somebody, your body is not a calculator. So let's mm-hmm. stop calculating calories because it doesn't work like that anyway. Yeah, and like let's stop having those little things on our wrists that buzz when we need to move, or like calculating how much movement we get, or you know what I'm talking about, like like the those. I don't even want to call them what they are because I don't want to give it. I don't even want to say it. But I feel like they become like the normal thing that we wear on our wrist like a watch. <laughs> and, then, and it tells us that we're supposed to be moving more or eating less or whatever. I feel like, we, yeah, we're not we're not designed to be like that. I do feel like our, our body is just so much more complex than we give it credit for. Um, and it's like a moving target. Like we're always changing. Um, you know, the aging process is really interesting. I'm, I'm almost at midlife. So I'm like, I can, I can just see it. Like, I'm like, it's kind of neat how my body has changed and evolved over the last 20 years to allow this next step in my life, you know, and, and help me prepare for it. Um, I'm glad that I work in the area that I work in because it's helped me to just know that this is just normal. Um, but it's still hard because our world doesn't say that we should, as women, you know, go through aging. But I'm like, darn it, I'm going to do it. <laughs> and I feel lucky. I'm like, I'm lucky enough to, to live to midlife, right? So, oh. But wouldn't that be wonderful if aging was something we could appreciate? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty awesome how, like, our body shifts around as women to support the aging process. And if we fight it, how that would it makes us like prolong menopause and not have as much energy. You know, if we just let it be and let us be expert of ourselves, you know, yeah, I think we'd be much happier and probably healthier as well. Um, so Julie, tell me who, um, what sort of population of person do you find yourself working with the most? So um, I have a, a group practice here. There's me and two other dietitians where we um, are all fat positive dietitians and we serve, I live in North Carolina and we serve like the central part of the state. And so we work with any kind of eating disorder. I personally am, um, I also work with every kind of eating disorder, but right now I, I find myself most intrigued with the, the binge eating part of eating disorders and um, also women with polycystic ovarian syndrome, also called PCOS. I, um, it's another area that I'm really, I don't know, just finding myself more and more interested in and how they're connected to eating disorders. I feel like there are a group of women where weight bias hurts more than anywhere else and they need our message of um, weight inclusive types of approaches. And so, um, so yeah, we work with, uh, I know for me, I work with any age 
um, any gender and really any kind of eating disorder. But right now, like the binging experience is where I'm probably putting most of my effort. Polycystic ovarian syndrome, did you say? Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. I know very little about this. I would love to share with you what it is. <laughs> So this is a condition that really people get diagnosed with it when they um, basically rule out other things. So it's it's this kind of vague experience, you know, ambiguous and everyone kind of looks different, but it's been ruled out that they don't have any of those other conditions. But in a nutshell, it's a hormonal condition that has ties to genetics and the environment. And they know for sure people pass it down through families. But for women... Um, hormonally it affects it starts in their hypothalamus and it affects things like their mood and their metabolism um basically any way a hormone is involved it's going to affect their body eventually and one of the components of that that ends up getting affected is ovulation and they used to think that women with this would um automatically had these cysts around their ovaries but really what it was was multiple follicles but not everyone with polycystic ovarian syndrome has these polycysts on their ovaries <laughs> so they they kind of need to change the name but uh but anyway they used to always think it was just about fertility and they only just put people on birth control pills and then they were done with it but what we've come to understand is that not only does it affect the hormones with ovulation and um, things in that regard, it affects androgens, so it, it increases testosterone level for women. So they end up having things like male pattern baldness and hair on their face. They feel really not female in a sense because of that. And then they also have really high insulin levels. Um, not everyone with PCOS has high insulin levels, but it's it's the majority at this point. And so for some women, that leads to a tremendous amount of weight gain. And then usually it's a, a weight gain really quickly. Um, one um, place some people have seen me talking about PCOS was on this uh, reality show called My Big Fat Fabulous Life. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's on TLC. And I worked with a person, her name is Whitney Thor. And she's someone who lives in the same small town in the South that I live in. So when they, they call, they're like, hey, do you want to be on a reality show? I'm like, I'm a 40-year-old woman in the South um, with two kids. I'm like, this is probably the only opportunity I have to ever be on reality TV. <laughs> so no one's interested in me. So uh, I was like, I'll take it. And uh, But anyway, so she's someone that a lot of people associate with polycystic ovarian syndrome. And she, I bring her up because she gained about 100 pounds her freshman year in college. And and she also, before that, experienced an eating disorder because she was always just a little bit bigger than people thought were okay was okay. And um, so she went through lots of weight cycling, lots of eating disorder experiences. She's gained and lost 100 plus pounds many times. And yet um, people still are like, she needs to lose weight. And um, my kind of take on it um, when I was filming with her was like, that pursuit of weight loss is the thing that is provoking that eating disorder and is deadly. And so putting that on the back burner and focusing on taking care of yourself, setting healthy boundaries and, and also, um, you know, choosing healthy behaviors, whatever those may be. Um, although when I talked to her, I was like, well, you know, just like many people in fat bodies, she wasn't eating a lot, you know? Um, and so just really getting down to like stop pursuing that weight loss, I think would promote health for women with PCOS and, and also with her. And so, um, 
it's really interesting how PCOS and eating disorders are so tangled up and um, because it makes their body feel socially not acceptable. So they're ne- they have tremendous negative body image. But then going to the doctor is really hard because every doctor just tells them to lose weight, to treat it. And that's not how you treat this condition. You like manage the hormones to treat the condition and that helps them be healthier, you know? Anyway, I can talk forever about it. <laughs> so. That's Yeah, so that's very interesting and a great example of how uh, um, a non-fat positive approach can really be detrimental to a person's health if they're suffering from a condition such as that. Yes, and so all of the research on PCOS is like how weight change improves the condition. But of course, when they look at that, they only look at like 12 weeks you know, they don't look like two years out. <laughs> and, you know, I sit with clients for years and years, so I get to see how those approaches really work long term. And, yeah, it's, it's a shame because if they instead looked at approaches of, like, helping people be healthier without focusing on weight loss, I think they would have solved it a long time ago. Well, ain't that the truth? We're coming to the end here. Um, the next question that I asked Julie was, if anybody's interested, where can they find out more about her? So I have a podcast. Um, it's called Love Food. And if someone has a complicated relationship with food, what they can do is they can write a letter to it. Um, it's kind of like Dear Abby for people who have an eating disorder. And so people write a letter to food and they talk about how things are tough and complicated. And me and sometimes the guest will um, try to, to help the person find some solutions. And at the end, uh, food writes back kind of like a nice little summary of what they can do to, to make some steps. And it's, it's meant to be healing and to help people who are seeing a dietitian and a therapist, something to do between sessions, you know, to kind of, because we don't live in a world that's really promoting this. So I, I wanted to give something for people between sessions to like put in their ears and listen to. <laughs> and um, so you can find me there. It's on Love Food. And then also my, my website, it's juliedillonrd.com. Okay, so I know that that's supposed to be the last question I ask in the podcast, and then I usually stop then. But we actually went on to have a pretty interesting, well, I thought it was interesting, discussion afterwards. And then after I finished recording, I thought, you know what, I might just throw that in, see what people think. So it's a bit, it's, it, was, it was recorded off the record, okay? But I think it should be on the record, so here it is. I'm not kidding when barely a day goes by when I don't get an email from someone saying, I'm in anorexia recovery, I'm really hungry, and my dietitian is keeping me on a meal plan of 2,500 calories, and I just sort of hit the wall a couple of times a day. So it's it's very important work, I think. Yeah, you know, whenever I have a client on a meal plan for weight restoration, um, and just even even if they're not weight restoring, but just like the nutritional rehabilitation, that's the first question I ask. Like, okay, so how's the meal plan feel? Are you getting hungry outside of it? Does it wake you up in the middle of the night? Are you not feeling satisfied at meals? Like we need to like ask that and not people, not expect people to tell us, I think, you know, to make sure that it is enough because it's not uncommon for people to need five or 6,000 calories. I mean, that is not outrageous in my book. Even um, me listening to this, I can hear in my voice when I listen back at it, just how tired my voice sounds and how fed up I sound with this whole 
conversation and this whole problem of people given being given meal plans that are far too low in calories when they're in recovery. Oh, I'm so amazed that I managed to get through this next section without swearing, but I did. So the next part is we sort of go into a little bit more about talking a bit more specifics about what I experienced in recovery and what uh, other people sort of come to Julie and ask for and what she also notices when it comes to the caloric value of the meal plans that people are giving and how much they're eating. You know, there's this funny sort of thing about, oh, don't talk about numbers in, in um, eating disorder stuff, but I do because the truth is that in recovery, there were plenty of days when I ate far in excess of 10,000 calories because 10,000 is just when I stopped sort of being, just gave up trying to keep track. So I know that there are some days when I ate so much more than that. And, you know, then, then it's just basic Minnesota starvation study data shows that the men, in, when they were in recovery then from what was only a semi-starvation diet, yeah, not even near yeah. what a person with anorexia generally goes through, they ate between five and 10,000 calories minimum each. So it's just why are we then still basing meal plans on this ridiculously low intake it, it yeah. really it doesn't make any sense to me apart from oh yeah we're scared people are going to eat too much yeah well you know the thing that is frustrating is but also just part of it in eating disorders in general I think this goes for any kind of arm of the healthcare area whether you're a therapist or a physician or a dietitian I feel like most of us don't really get training in it in school and so when we find ourselves working in it we kind of just have to like stumble for a while to figure out and make lots of mistakes. I know I made tons of mistakes, but now um, we're trying to put together certifications. So like for at least for dietitians um, and, you know, in other areas too, we have like a certified eating disorder specialist for dietitians. And so in order to become a, an eating disorder specialist, you need to be supervised by someone who's already been doing this for a while. And like our training programs, hopefully it'll put a dent in things like that. Because 2,500, no way. That's <laughs> not going to do anything. That's just going to make people eat enough to feel really crummy about themselves. Yeah, it's just going to keep them in this halfway place. And, you know, for for many of us, actually, we then go into sort of, it, for me, it, I only went into extreme hunger on about 3,500 plus calories. And then eating anything less than sort of, 5,000 calories actually felt like torture like that's a cruelty yeah, yeah. and if somebody is in that place where they are very hungry it's it's mm. it's actually an I think an act of cruelty to say that oh you know yes you should be eating 2,500 calories do you see though too like when when uh just like culturally how we um how we experience fatness and so if someone is eating five to 10,000 calories a day and those of us who are outside of that are witnessing it, how that's poking at our, it's projecting at our own fears, you know? And so like, oh gosh, what if they can't stop, you know? But, but that's just our own fear of eating an amount to heal is about, you know? Um, and yeah, so, oh goodness. I felt so much better after that conversation. Huge thank you to Julie Duffy Dillon for um, having that with me and putting up with my little rant there at the end. I really enjoyed having her on the podcast. I think that you should check out hers. So I'll link to that in the show notes, but she did mention it in there as well. I'll show you where you can get that. 
Um, podcasts are fabulous. And while I'm at it, actually, talking about fo- fabulous podcasts, you have listened to um, Laura Collins' Lister Mensch's podcast. That's the New Plates podcast. You have, haven't you? Yeah, I'm sure you have. If you haven't, what have you been doing? I'll have a link to that in the show notes as well, just for good measure, just to help you along there. So yay, support for podcasts, all the podcasts. And remember, you can support this one by donating to ADRA and also helping someone with meal support. I'll link to that in the show notes as well. Thank you for listening. Until next time, cheers and cheerio.